Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich, founder of the League of Movable Type, and this is the Weekly Typographic, a podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Micah. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am tired. I'm the classic exhausted, but still here trying to be chipper. Why not? We got to talk about fonts. Right. Else, fonts, can make design, fonts. typography, and fun, and friends. And friends. We have a variety of interesting links to chat about this week. Very little in the news space, so we got to pull in a couple other. We have some background story about some fonts. We have an interesting write-up from Print Mag on somebody that I was unfamiliar with. Classic godfather of type background article a tool and a little bit more just for fun let's go let's go so our first article is on ascii art now micah when you think of ascii art tell me what comes to your mind the first thing is i'm glad that you said it out loud because i don't think i've ever said it out loud and i was like i don't know how to say this out loud (laughs) i think of how (laughs) when i started using computers it was ms dos and I want to be a little hacker. And it's like a combination of like dumb old text-based games where they were trying to make imagery. And I sometimes imagine the Matrix with those like flowing text things down the screen. What I'm thinking about, for anyone listening, maybe you also know Micah. You guys remember the website Game FAQs? Do you remember that? No. Oh, Game that? FAQs is basically when I used to play video games when I was a kid. You would basically, let's say you're playing the latest PlayStation game and you're like, oh, I'm stuck in this part of the game, like some RPG or some particular, some game like Tomb Raider. I don't know. You're stuck. You go to the game FAQ website and then you search up the webpage and then people sit there and gave free walkthroughs, FAQ walkthroughs of video games. And what they yeah. always would do is the big top of it, they would have an ASCII art lettering piece. Oh. either a interpretation of the tile menu when you first loaded up the game or some special variation of lettering on the title of the game. So it was super fun. fun. So yeah. So it was I like, guess also game. they used to do that in guitar tabs a lot too. Nice. Well, for learning, like learning when you play instruments. Right. And they would, the tabs themselves were ASCII art, not exactly like for artistic graphic purposes, but still they'd be like illustrating a fretboard. With I's and X's and whatnot. Yeah. So obviously ASCII art has been very much part of internet culture for a very long time. And I will say that I think this article was really nice and refreshing. It gave this historical overture and love letter to ASCII art. Yeah. And also it's deeper, not just even internet culture side, as we're discussing meditating on, but also it's historical printmaker using of kind of ASCII concepts the use of typography as textured object as a texture pattern to generate images and then playing on as the author says a kind of intermixing of the imagery and the typographic together i did think you would appreciate that history that they included from the print from old print books and whatnot so this article is like you said a love letter but it's also introducing an open source font called jgs font by Velveteen, who we've talked about many times on our podcast, but they are a fellow open source type design foundry based out of France. 
And they made this, dare I say, beautiful little ASCII art-friendly font. And this is like the background of why they cared about it. Yeah. I think the idea of storytelling like elevates the project 100%. So it gives a lot more context about why he's making the font the way he did. I think in particular, I think it's interesting the either zero set width or zero side bearing data for the glyph files so that characters can connect between each other as opposed to having spaces between them was interesting to talk about in this context, as well as purposely aligning. So actually, this is fun. This is a kind of interesting moment of usually where graphic designers and type designers clash is why certain letters don't align to certain elements, other elements. I do mm. I do t- sometimes run into that problem. Not even problem, just different use to different applications of type. And so what I mean is, for example, like, a type designer might make optical corrections on the position of the crossbar in an E and an F, capital E, right. capital F, for example. I'm trying to harmonize it within not just the letter itself, but then also just the whole set when it's typeset, which thus might mean they're not perfectly aligned. And for a graphic designer who's using a more kind of large scale graphic application, or in this case, pattern use, that's very annoying. <laughs> it's basically breaking the pattern. So I do find this. The decision sometimes, like this is a person making a typeface intentionally for pattern use. So that led to certain decisions of alignment that are traditionally abnormal in type design, but tell me a different kind of thinking about typography and how it's going to be used. Which that is a lot of attention to detail. You got to appreciate that, especially for an open source font. I really love not only... Not only did they do that, they did it in two styles, right? Like they did it in a pixely and a vectory format. This is I'm I, this is we're we're linking to this article about the background, but they actually have the font available on their site. But that's a lot of attention to detail. And you got to respect it. That's freaking cool. I think so too. Go check it out. Also, I will comment that that kind of love letter to Jonah G for example, that self-portrait example, I thought it was delightful. Now, as a general comment, Mike, I don't know if you remember this from your typography training, like in school, but the use type to make a self-portrait assignment, I have to be honest, I used to hate that thing with a passion. <laughs> the way this article is talking about it and the work demonstrated by Joanna G got me a little sympathetic to it. I was like, there's actually <laughs> something useful about the talk, something useful about it. Micah, what your did you have to go? Did you have to do an assignment like that? When you I don't like, remember having to do an assignment like that. I think maybe I have messed around with ASCII art at some point in my computer career yeah. for fun, but I don't remember that being like a school assignment for me. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I was for me, and I remember. I've always remembered hating it because I just think because I think the part that generally I found was you just pick any most people would just pick any random letter. And they're relying on just the mass of the object to make the design as opposed to being sensitive about the actual forms and the glyph making the pattern. So what I mean is basically they, if you make anything a small enough font size, you can make it work for this application. Like it bypasses the kind of intelligence that could have come here. I keep bringing this up because that self-portrait of Joanna, or Joanne, excuse me, I just really love the use of those brackets it represents yeah. both the parting of the hair 
as well as the flow wavy movement of the hair. No, this is so smart. It's so smart. I'm like, that's smart. That's good. That's actually a good use of the assignment. Maybe if I, for my students, so I'm doing typography introduction classes. Maybe I could have them do a self-portrait with type, but specify it has to be a certain resolution. You can't just drop the font size down to like two points and just wash over the whole space with just right. a whole bunch of whatever. You have to be intentional in the glyphs you're picking for the pattern. I will say, okay, if you're looking at the article right beneath that portrait of Joan G. Stark, who was the inspiration for all of this, there is a link embedded in the paragraph Joan's website, which used to be hosted on GeoCities, of art that was made with this ASCII style, which is obviously what we're referencing. And I don't know if you've looked through it, Thomas, but I feel like you will appreciate that same nuance. There's so many, like there's a, there's like a pair of elephants that are like linking trunks and it's adorable and cute. And just the fact that the vertical lines are using crossbars for their literal legs. But then when you get down to like their feet on the ground, it's periods because it makes a different texture. And like the eyes, it's two elephants from the side looking at each other and crossing trunks. And the eye on one is a lowercase e, Mm. looks like an eyeball. And the eye on the other one is a lowercase i with bar over it. And it's just impressive how that tiny, subtle difference between the E and the A end up making different expressions in these two animals. Yes. So the love letter is for good reason. Joan Joan knew what they were doing. Good stuff. Our next article. Tecla Evelina Severin shakes up Scandinavian design with a keen eye for color. So this is from Print Mag and uh, talking about a designer, photographer, colorist from Stockholm and sharing a lot of photographs from this person's work and displays of their work and whatnot. And it's wild. As someone who self-proclaimed sucks at color, it's crazy colors to me, but... I'm very impressed at the detail and the way that someone can use color. For reference, some of these are like abstract shapes and colors and whatnot. And some of these are rooms that have been painted and not just painted, but like the objects in the rooms are specifically chosen with colors in mind and whatnot. I don't know why, but I'm getting like power 80s vibes from (laughs) with the Memphis school kind of emphasis of pattern and boldness of the color palette. You know what's funny? Shout out to my friend, Anna Fine. I feel like, uh, Mike, you may not know her, but she's a colleague of mine. She basically, as a side interest, she's got into a mass amount of interior design and architecture. Mm. And I need to send her this link because she must know this artist and must know this work. Or if she doesn't, she's going to love it because the kind of bold patterns, very bold patterns, right? Bold colors the kind of sensitivity of like spacing of how mm-hmm. actually the very basic shapes are playing out the spheres and the rectangles, things like that. And the arches, I think it definitely it's, it does feel like a sci-fi eighties power eighties. I'm expecting someone with strong padded shoulders, 
like a blazer, like people with blazers on, <laughs> yeah. strong power shoulders on those things, power suits. So I'm expecting an indoor pool somewhere, like almost Miami, a little Miami vibe a little bit. I could see that. Yeah. It's interesting too, because it's a little bit retro futuristic. Yeah, that's why I'm, that's why I'm saying this like power 80s vibes and sci-fi energy. That's what I'm getting. That's what I meant. Yes. If, if we went back in time to the 80s and they were referencing the 50s, but trying to see what the 2020s would look like. Yes. It's crazy. The degree of meta commentary on meta commentary is <laughs> impressive. And so a lot of this is like photographs of an exhibit, which is of a space, which I imagine would be very fun to walk through. But A, this was a good inclusion to share just because it's something different that you might not see otherwise. And good to take inspiration from things that you don't normally look at. And also... There was a line in it that I appreciated, which is a simple, subtle line that like, I think is somewhat obvious, but also a nice reminder. She says, in terms of color theory, she always says, color is always relative, never absolute. It's what you put next to it that defines it. Yes, I empathize with that sentiment. It's like when people ask me, what's my favorite color? What's my favorite font? It's exactly the same response. It's exactly that line. But almost any color and almost any font will look beautiful in the right context, in the right pairings. It just depends. You can't give that. I can't give you that answer. On and you don't have favorites, though? Not particularly. Oh, I don't believe you. I think maybe better siders pairings I like better. So that thus it gives the more context behind that. Okay. There is a difference between the conversation of what works or what is good for a concept or a client or something, whatever, like for a project yeah. versus this is just my favorite. Yeah. On that, on this, I can tell you, I generally like more muted palettes. So if I'm working on a project, like my first go-to is like a, a neutral grays, like neutral grays with some tints on it and usually the blue red direction, something like that. And that too, I would argue there's a slight difference between potential difference between your favorite and your go-to. Because a lot of times your go-to is going to be just what you have seen works. And so if that just works more often than not. It's easy to pick that as your go-to. Maybe that will become your favorite because you use it so much and you end up liking it or maybe not. It becomes my favorite because I like getting paid easy. <laughs> sure, sure. But I, for example, was very excited because a week ago or something, my favorite cafe here in Philly posted, mm-hmm. oh, it was during the, uh, the apocalypse when the towns like storms. witch apocalypse right yeah. yeah when there were fires in canada and they blew down to the east coast in america and everything was orange and basically seems like a scene abysmal. from dune it's like we were right. on that planet in dune and so they posted on their social media like hey we're actually closing early today it was a photograph of them holding a cup with stay safe written in sniglet around it oh. And I was like, oh, Sniglet's my favorite. I love Sniglet. What a cozy little font. And they just were like, LOL. Yeah, they didn't. It's fine. Yeah. I, <laughs> you cared about it, Micah. It's all that matters. Right. right. <laughs> that being said, I almost never get to actually use Sniglet on a project or anything. But it is my favorite. Shout out. It's on the League website. Go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next up, we have the godfather of type, David Burlow. Grandpapa. Grandpa type. <laughs> yes, so this is an interview with David Burlow, who Mike and myself had a pleasure working with on a project. He got killed, but we worked on a project with David Burlow. He was a pleasure to work with. 
And this was an interview about his recent acquisition of his font collection by Monotype. It's an interview with him going over that event and the kind of his reflections on the type industry as a result. Some nice background, some nice name dropping. We love David Burlow, so it was nice to see his name pop up in the news. And it's good that while feelings are a little bit mixed on Monotype, perhaps... I at least am happy that that's great news for a great type designer to be making some good money. So I'm going to say two notes. One is I remember when I worked for Joshua Darden as a type designer, I remember he brought up with David Burlow. This is back when interpolation was not as common. So again, a meta theme of interpolation being a process in type design. When it wasn't so common, David Burlow worked on Giza. It's a font family. I actually, I don't remember, Mike, we had our first meeting with Burlow talking about the project we're working on together. I brought it up. It's, oh my God, I'm in the room with you. This is amazing. Yeah. It's an incredibly complicated slap Sarah family that was made with, considering its scope of range, what Giza can provide in terms of its optical size, power, and with how extreme the weights get, with only four masters. It had basically, this is back in the early 2000s, optical sizes, massive range of weight and width, the whole gambit. And normally we'd expect eight to 16 masters. He did it before. So it was like, this has to show how awesome he was as a type designer, that he was able to hit this with such a wide range of a font family, with just minimal masters being drawn. So for me, my kind of respect for Burlow comes from that a story that Josh told me way back in the day. With that said, what this article to talk about, the one nice thing is a fair point, is the idea of custodianship. What happens to these fonts when, because fonts live forever, we don't. <laughs> so basically the question of intellectual property and what happens when the people who made this stuff passes away, we're all going to go, we're going to pass away. And the ones who are making these fonts, where are they going to go? So in theory, one of the reasons why an acquisition like this does matter is to ensure some stewardship or custodianship of the assets so they can continue to be used or updated into the future. I don't know why. I remember a bunch of designers talking about doing some kind of nonprofit entity that would do exactly that, that it would steward the fonts of designers after they passed away, for example. I don't remember the name. I don't know if anything came out of it, but David Brillo talking about it as one of the motivations for this acquisition for Monotype. I think it's an interesting point. I think it's fair. Also, just the basic question, especially not open source, what happens when these designers pass away? I guess supposedly they come to the public domain eventually and then can be used for other projects. That is a fair point. Maybe we need to research that. Is I'm fairly clear on the public domain when it comes to lots of other artistic works. That has come up in licensing conversations before. But I'm not sure that has come up very much in the talk of fonts. And I'm unsure what the legal, like what legally happens there. Do they actually go into public domain? I'm not sure. It depends also if the copyrights to a person or to a corporate entity. Corporate entities don't die. So that would Sure, but fonts are slightly different than, say, a movie or a book or something like that, in that it isn't legally classified as like a piece of art it's considered a piece of software software and i'm not sure that kind of 
expiration happens with software. We're going to have to research that. Let's research this so that we're not just like speculating and making shit up. We already are doing such a great job at that. (laughs) (laughs) With that said. Anyway, fun little article. On back to the article. Actually, one thing that I did not know I learned from this article was that I remember using charcoal as the font when I was in middle school. I remember that font. And it's funny to find out that was a Burlo font that I did not know. Apparently, the only one that got past Steve Jobs, apparently. He worked on a bunch of them, but apparently only that one got through the door. He was notorious for being a stickler for design and specifically typography. But yeah, that was way back in pre-lickable Apple operating system, like before OS X, which we're still riding OS X. Like we were talking off the record before we started recording, we're reminiscing about our computers back in college, and you brought up the G5. And then my mind instantly went, oh, brutal. I remember that from high school and college. Yeah, yeah. I literally took out a loan to buy that G5. It was awful. So besides that, the only other notes before, as as oldies reminiscing about the 2000s, yeah, basically, Burlow just closes up with some notes about the change in the industry. I thought it was interesting that his historical notes when he was working at Linotype, where they were making four glyphs a day, and like turnaround times would be weeks for – I've heard this before in other accounts, but it's always refreshing to hear it again in this context of contemporary type design, of this drawing and then getting it proofed and then looking at the proof and then making adjustments. It was a huge procedure of time. Versus the much more rapid, immediate feedback style we have now. And then he made comments, by the way, on the expansion of scripts, service, supporting scripts. That's totally the case. That's absolutely obvious. And he was waxing poetics about AI and fonts, basically. A little vaguey on that point, but that's fine. We don't really know what's going to happen with it. So I think it is fair for him just to glaze over the point. Yeah, for sure. Next up, we have a fun little tool. I'm sure we've shared a resource like this here and there in the past, but this one is really straightforward and it is visual calculator for calculating type scales for the web. With a nice homage and shout out to my friend, Tim Brown from Adobe. Can you believe that was like 10 years ago, 15 years ago when that website came out? Yeah. Copyright 2010, Tim Brown, the original. (laughs) That is, yeah, that's true. That's interesting. There are many tools like this because Tim Brown popularized that idea and then it was fairly easy to make tools that will help calculate these things for you. The and problem so when is, what? This, as a general comment, the only problem with all these kind of tools and, serve, and ideas is people actually using it on their web pages, actual projects. It's always the question. As in, you don't think a type scale is a good idea? Actually, to be fair, the author, Jeremy Church, did make a comment about it. I mean, I agree with the sentiment. When you're using a kind of high ratio, so anything above a 1.3, ratio, there's, they explode so fast that they're unwieldy. You can maybe do three elements with a scale that quick, that kind of explodes in size that fast. And then on the low scales, like the minor second, for example, you see that setting. I got to be honest, you have to be a real type aficionado to pick up that difference. Like in terms of picking up the scale difference. The really small stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The changes are too small for most people to pick it up. They're there, but it's, it's not as quick to pick up, especially on a metric like font size in particular. 
I love ratios. I think ratios are fantastic. I generally find when designers use a ratio in their project, it's much better, generally. I just find that gen- ratios are fussy. It's almost like grain of wood, like on a texture material. You've got to cut with the grain. You can't go against it. And there's a certain, it has certain temperaments about what it wants to do. It's just a personal experience working with ratios. Like in other things, for example, like trim size, for example, if you have a document, if you're working in print, for example, or even different aspect ratios, extreme ratios on both ends, say you're doing a spread mm-hmm. and you're doing a low ratio. So a minor second, you're basically got the narrowest little column I've ever seen. So there's the narrowest little pages mm-hmm. to typeset with versus going all the way to a one to basically an octave, basically a one-to-one. Just you're dealing with a huge square at that point. So ratios are fantastic. I just think they're temperamental. So just as a general reflection note about them. Mike, what are your thoughts on the point? For one, I think the idea behind these type scales is valid, right? I always try to, when I am trying to teach design, I usually talk about having some sort of similarity between elements. And so the idea of using one particular number to multiply everything to get your different sizes means there's like this invisible thread tying all of the type sizes together, which you can feel, but you don't necessarily see. And so it it adds to some sort of like cohesiveness to a design. And in that way, I support it. And I often do that. I usually use like this golden ratio scale. And I use that in spacing between elements and widths and heights, as well as typographic sizes. But I don't use a precise scale. I don't like to find that stuff up front and then say, oh, pick size six. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Yes, because for example, it depends on your content. If your photos are a three, four ratio, it's logical you're going to use something either a three to four ratio or something analogous to it. Like right. you're not going to just spit out a minor second. Um, Which that's the other problem that I have with, okay, I have two problems with type scales. One is that, right? Like it makes sense to tie it into other elements that you have. And nobody ever talks about why you would pick golden ratio over minor second or what the heck that even means. Like that's obviously, it's not obvious. It's referencing like musical scales, mm-hmm. right? Which are mathematical scales in the end. But I've never really heard anybody talk about why I would pick a minor second or a major second or how I can keep that in my brain to even understand why I would pick one over the other. And so what you're referencing is usually my answer to that, right? Is If something needs to be a particular size, use that size in one way or another as a multiplier and then everything will feel a little bit more cohesive. Rather than saying, I'm going to pick 1.250, the major third. And the pragmatics of actually applying ratios, right? That's the first part is, this is true in design in general. You got to do, you got to, you have to deal with what's in front of you. The photos given to you, the colors given to you, the type, the language copywriting given to you. Like you just have to work with it and you have to find the thing that best approximates what you're working with. Good photography generally, ideally, is in a in some photo ratio, and that's a, and that's the problem. I guess if you're good about it, you could do something that's a subdivision of a three fourth, for example, because most photo like no photograph is going to be in a minor second. I always think of this as like sizes of a square. So you have an octave, which is a one to one, 
right? So basically, it's literally just the equivalent this way and this way. And then as you go down, as you go down the numbers, they're getting higher in pitch in the sense that they're the square is getting narrower. If you so like it's width. becoming more vertical and less horizontal. Yeah, if you keep the vertical constant, assuming you're keeping the S a constant. Right. Obviously, it's obviously the inverse if you switch out which one you're changing, which one you're keeping the same. But so ultimately, there is a lot of value in having some invisible thread that is tying the different sizes of things together. Yeah. My funny, other actually. problem with the type scales, though, is that they end up with these obscure pixel sizes, which is, I mean, it fonts are vectors, right? So they can scale as big and small as you want, but there are still like breakpoints where it's going to look good or not good. And so like having a 9.89 pixel size of a font is inevitably going to look a little bit janky. Yeah. It might have some rasterization issues. Basically that's what Mike is bringing up is that fonts have to get or vector based, but they have to be rasterized in their outputs, whether it be on a printer or on a screen. So generally anti-aliasing and rasterization, the processes, specifically rasterization in fonts, the process of rendering those vectors into pixels can be better or worse based on where they fit on the pixel grid and specified size. So yes, going into decimals of that small, it's good. you're going to get some janky effects. Let's be constructive. I think it's grandly good this webpage exists. And I think it's great that he homaged Tim Brown and that this idea is there. I yeah. almost wish there was like a throttling process mm. like where it throttled. So it didn't just give you to spit out like these. Now to be fair, and actually a big part of this of the page is explaining the REM M system so technically the ratios are against m space or rem space it's not against pixels but he does conveniently show the pixel conversion and ultimately even if you're using rems or m's on a web page it's rendering as pixels yeah it has to be converted to pixels eventually yeah so it's almost like it'd be cool if it had like a throttling clamp i just i'm dealing with all this kind of interpolation stuff right now and i'm doing like an investigation this summer on motion graphics and typography so I'm like investigating things like using things like thresholds and clamps to like not have these nasty spit out pixels or decimal points, but yeah. to tighten it up to maybe one half pixel. Maybe you throttle it down so you can get I it. generally try to go full pixels. Oh, you just keep like, it there? Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. That is part of the point too, is like you can decide what your base pixel size is like. 16 is a pretty standard. Yeah. The next size up. If I were to use the golden ratio, the next size up is 32. It ends up 25.89 pixels. Yeah. I'd be like, I'd probably be like, yeah, 24. Nice. Yeah. And then the next one above that is like 41.89. I'd probably be like 42. 42. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that'd be useful, actually. Now, also, to be, and to be fair, actually, with music, I was doing a music theory investigation this semester and the spring semester. Most of our notes are like we play instruments, they're off key, just slightly. It's like we have a certain – human beings are willing to have a certain tolerance of error and when we hit our notes, when we play instruments or hear, song, hear our notes. Um, so if we can do that in music, we can do it in type or just in design. Yeah, I think I, I think a kind of clamp feature would be pretty useful. And probably if I was going to tell someone to use this site, I would probably tell them to do that, clamp it to certain pixel sizes that approximate around the range. Yeah, that's good. One last note, I have to bring it up. You know what's funny as a general note? I generally find these ratios on spacing 
is so much more effective. What I mean is, let's assume you, you actually don't change the font size. You actually lock it all the same, but you just change spacing, either horizontal or vertical. I think that actually does most of the layout work for you and creates all the distinctions and clarities you need in creating that kind of quiet bonding. Personal note, I just had, I find that would probably, I think the application ratio is more in spacing relationships is actually way more important and actual, and not to say they're not useful in, in the actual explicit font size. I'm saying in spacing, I think that's the other aspect I think is really important to explore as well. I definitely agree with that. That is primarily where I use that golden ratio all the time is we have a headline. It is whatever size it is. And the space underneath it where, you know, you need some amount of space to make it clear that the sub headline is like not jamming into it. And I try to keep that amount of spacing also variations of the golden ratio. And that way the, no matter what size the type is, there is some connection with the negative space between the text. Yeah. And let alone the margins on the outside and how right. those relate with the inner margins. A great point, good sir. Superb. Just friendly feedback on, go check out the webpage. Definitely check it out. I think it's definitely worth your investigation. But yeah, generally notes. I think these are I think this is, these are good notes to take away with it. All right. Our last linkeroni is from the classic fun blog, It's Nice That. Good times. Titled, For Graphic Designer Yosh, It's All About pushing the edge through abstract typography. Wow, Micah, I can sense you're a real big fan of this right now. <laughs> no, it's similar to the article that we were talking about with Severin, where yes. it's kind of inspiration for you to keep in the back of your mind and maybe be like, oh, that's a cool way that they thought outside of the box. Maybe I'll use something like that at some point in the future. That's how I think of this stuff. Yeah, this is definitely a lifestyle vibes here that I feel my age coming through because I'm like, <laughs> wow, Micah, this must be the moment when we were coming up and looking at David Carson and like all those people, I guarantee you like the old fuddy-duddy designers who are like, oh, David Carson, there's like energy vibe about it. Of I've been here before. I've seen this. I've seen this before. But for other people who have never saw it before, it's, oh, that's really cool. Really interesting. Yeah, I definitely, again, like I brought up last week too. This is another week where it's like the return of the emigre 90s postmodern graphic design vibes has returned again. He has classical graphic design training. I can see it. It is like basically these Swiss graphic designers who started messing with their grid systems. You can tell they were trained in that Swiss modernist design aesthetic and discipline, but then they were trying to push it and experiment in different directions and way. I can tell Yosh has a similar training and he's doing that. Then he's, but he's pushing even harder. It's like that 90s Cranbrook emigre energy, pushing it super hard with this kind of handwriting, calligraphic swash aesthetics, intermixing of the modernist graphic design approaches with these hand, with this kind of calligraphic handwriting that's like purposely ugly. Like it has this junction breaking and it's kind of using swashes in very unusual ways. That Those are definitely energy some sensing here. I will also say that Explorer's logo, that is strong 90s energy going on. It's giving me like 90s mole vibes. Interesting. Okay. I will say the vinyl system one, you could that's where I can tell he has traditional design training because you can sense he has a good sense of scale, great sense of color, good sense of composition. They definitely know what they're doing. 
It's just we got some strong – the strike, the 90 is stricken back again in this case. That's my read on this. I mean, it's, I guess it's interesting because some of that feels like 90 striking back and some of it does not, which is where you're getting this. Like yes. you can see influences from more traditional straight-laced, less experimental stuff behind the scenes too. And I was going to reference that as a good example too. The vinyl system is, I don't know, practically like Swiss. Like it's yeah. fairly straight laced with like only a few weird things here and there. Yeah. And then you go down to the Mercedes Benz stuff and I'm like, oh, that's a Portishead album cover, right? There's a wide variety, which I think is interesting. Yeah. This Explorers one, I'm pulling it up again as a look at it. Yeah, the, this kind of inverting of the positive negative space when it gets towards the letters. Yeah. This is some strong 90s illustrator energy right now. Like that's – are you feeling that? I feel like this is someone who's like yeah. opened the file in the 90s and was like, oh, wait, we can do Pathfinder and do excur- like exclusion overlap? Right. Cool. There's a little bit of energy going on. Yeah. it's But not that bad. There's some work in the counter of the E and the one on the bottom – the on the second tier of like the second e on the bottom that's a little like a little good sensitivity i sent some good sense relatively good sensitivity of how they blended that cross stroke in the counter with that kind of negative space play i think that's actually working kind of good but yeah there's it is interesting that it's the same company it's a logo that is variable and can be this like crazy faux copier toner kind of material with these inversions and then below it is just like this really simple straight laced still interesting enough that it's mixing uppercase yeah, and lowercase yeah. which also feels very 90s yeah it feels like something i would see in a mall i'm telling you 90s mall like yeah. i'm feeling the 90s no, I'm mall agreeing energy. With you. it's funny oh i swear it's mall kitsch it's like the cor- <laughs> oh. what is interesting is that doesn't exist anymore no, it's it, right. Like it, it, it went it's, extinct. Micah, this is okay. So earlier in the summer, I did a field. I did a trip to this museum of the West. Basically, it's like a, it's part of the Smithsonian. It's in Georgia. I live in Georgia now. An hour and a half from where I live. I checked it. It's a great museum. It's gigantic. It has a lot of art. Okay, it had a whole section about the Wild West. And an exhibit they showed was all these paintings of the Wild West, like the pictures of scenes there and all that. But they were made in the 1900s, like 1900s to 1950s. The Wild West already was done. Like it was mm. done by the Civil War. <laughs> it's like this nostalgia, like I blew my mind by the exhibit that I, the curator's notes made a note about it. But I'm like, why didn't you make this the biggest thing about it? This is a whole story of nostalgia. This Wild West didn't exist. No one who made these paintings were actually in the Wild West. It's yeah. remembrance. It's of something they didn't live for themselves. And to be fair, we don't know if that's true with this artist or not. But True. We don't know how old this person is per se. That's but, fair. But still, it is. It is. It's either they lived through when they were, they lived through, but it doesn't exist anymore, or they never experienced it at all. So right. it stands on both cases. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. I tell you, the design is a very fascinating place. It's when we get this stacking of meta commentary of history and then vibes and memories of it from references that are indirect, it gets really fascinating. I'm just saying it's related to both artist features we saw this week, this kind of remembrance of the past through a lens of how they saw it in another time and place. 
for right. example, or through an experience. Again, I don't know if 90s mole kitsch was like the go-to Yosh was going with, but assuming that is the case, like the fact that there's like these layered commentaries and interpretations that comes out in these design choices. It's so rich and dense. <laughs> so it's amazing to be honest, because it's wow, if you really sit here and actually look at it, there's so much commentary uh happening in just these design projects. You could just And it's it's interesting too that like similar to fashion, the half life of a trend is twenty years. Right? Yeah, like, we're about that. Yeah. Twenty years later we're like Oh, they were doing cool stuff back then. Let's try to revive that and see if that fits in with what's happening now. This is a commentary on the fact that our cool like cousins or uncles or aunts that were like 20 years ahead of like we were like teenagers and we had cool adults that were living in that time. This is kind of like a homage to them. Is that what's happening? I don't know. Maybe it might also just be that uh, 20 years is just enough time to forget any of the negative parts of it and get nostalgic and being like, we should try something like that, but update it. Actually, I'm not going to – I mean, actually, that's a better account than what I proposed because I was at the mall recently. I had to go to the Apple store. I was like, wow, I'm in the mall. I'm in the food court. <laughs> I got myself an Auntie Anne's pretzel. Oh, classic. I know. And it was like just like waves of nostalgia hitting. And it was like anyway, – and by the way, it was packed. It was the mall of Georgia. It was absolutely gigantic and packed. But I was like, wow, nostalgia. That was like a real overwash of it at the time. And so like it had been fun. enough time since you've been to the mall that you forgot the feelings of, oh, I hate the mall. It's so crazy, whatever. Yeah. That you were like, oh, this is nice. This is cool. Yeah. I could do this once every three months. I have to go back and go get my Apple product. My AirPods broke. I was under warranty, so it was fine, but it's fine. Well, anyway, it's always interesting to bring up trends and show illustrations of trends, both new ones and repeating. So kind of fun. Kind of fun. And hopefully you enjoyed hearing about that. If you have any interesting articles, as always, we love hearing suggestions of what to talk about. Next week, we will be back with more cool new articles and who knows? Fun, fun chatting. That's right. Can't wait. Micah, it's been a pleasure. See you next week. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do. Do-do-do-do. 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 Do-do-do-do